following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Good morning to everybody. It's uh, good to be together. On the Lord's Day, if I could uh, just start by introducing myself a little bit. My name is Ryan Shaw, and I serve uh, with Tim and several other, Tim Dunham and several other uh, different leaders as part of the teaching training team with FCF. And FCF, if you're not familiar, is the foundation that's connected to this church, uh, CCF. Um, My primary ministry Uh, is with a mission mobilization initiative called SVM2. And what our primary emphasis is uh, with SVM2 is multiplying leaders and ministries in the non-Western church who are mobilizing and equipping their own people for the Great Commission. So we multiply leaders and ministries in various traditionally non-sending yet uh, nations in order to help the non-Western church really develop uh, and grow. I have a wonderful family. My lovely wife is downstairs serving in the kindergarten uh, this morning. My two kids, Noah and Emma, are nine and six, and they both uh, go to Grace International uh, School. We've been here in Thailand for four years, and before we were uh, before we arrived here, we were in Turkey. We were serving in uh, Istanbul for two years, and then Izmir. Uh, for two years, and before that, we lived for four years in Canada. So we like this four-year idea. Hopefully, we're going to stay in Chiang Mai a little bit longer than that. All right, let's pray this morning as we get into the Word. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for your presence, Lord, among us this morning. Lord, we thank you for your love, God. Lord, we can only love you because you first loved us in an extraordinary manner. Father, we want to uh, just see that a little bit more clearly today. Lord, open our eyes this morning. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Lord, teach us, Holy Spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, what we want to look at, a little bit in detail, uh, is what has become known as the Lord's Prayer. We're familiar with this, very familiar with this, actually. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Now, as I say what the topic is, it's easy for some of us to begin to kind of check out. Because we say, oh, the Lord's Prayer... Are you kidding me? I'm very familiar with that. I memorized it when I was six years old. Uh, I say it uh, every week, sometimes in church, in our different ministry environments. So it becomes very comfortable. All right. My hope this morning is that we're going to peel away some of the layers, maybe a little bit more, to see some things, maybe some new insights, or to refresh ourselves with some very crucial insights about what the Lord really intended to communicate through this prayer and what he really has called us uh, to be about. Now, one of the things I've noticed in my own life, and probably many of us 
have experienced a little bit of this as well, is that we see sometimes prayer as a bit of a drudgery. Okay? That is exactly uh, uh, the opposite of what the Lord really intends prayer to be. This incredible two-way communication, this lifestyle of living in His presence, abiding with Him, uh, understanding what His heart is in a given situation, and then praying that purpose into being. It's this incredible cycle, if you will, that God invites us to participate in. So we want to get out of the idea that, oh, it's just kind of drudgery. Yes, the Lord asks me to do it, and I really don't like it. No. We want to come to a place, and we're all on a journey in this, we want to come to a place where we see prayer as this glorious adventure that Jesus invites us into for the purpose of transforming our situations around us. Now, if I was in charge, thank God I'm not, if I was in charge of this thing called the kingdom of God, and I've often talked to the Lord about this, I've said something like, Lord, I would have set things up so differently. Because you seem to really rely, not rely, you seem to really call us into this partnership in prayer. And so, in many ways, it's this connection with us as we pray back to you that you do things in line with your kingdom purpose. Lord, why did you set this up like this? And the Lord, if we were having a real conversation, which we do, he would come back and say, because I love the relationship. I love connecting with my people and then empowering them to go forth in my purposes through the spirit of prayer. So the spirit of prayer or prayer is not just a drudgery. It's central, absolutely central to who you and I were created to be, number one. But then it's central for what God is doing in the earth today. And I hopefully won't step on too many toes with this one, but I would even go as far as to say maybe more than our work itself, our ministry, I mean, that prayer, the Lord set up this strange, mysterious means called prayer uh, for something much more in mind than you and I often uh, grasp and understand. Now, this Lord's Prayer, as it's come to be known, right, we need to understand a little bit of background, a little bit of context. All right? We know that whenever we want to study or look at a particular passage, we want to understand what's happening around that passage. So the context uh, of Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 to 13, is obviously inside this message called the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave, right? Matthew 5, 6, uh, and 7. And so let's... Uh, in order to understand the prayer, we need to go back a little bit and say, well, what's the Sermon on the Mount all about? What's the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount? So what I've come to find in my little study, and just looking and walking with the Lord for long enough now, seems that the Sermon on the Mount uh, really highlights the main characteristics and the main actions, the main behaviors even, that the Holy Spirit is wanting to cultivate in the lives of true believers. So it's an invitation, the Sermon on the Mount is, it's an invitation to walk in this highest lifestyle, if you will, of discipleship in the kingdom of God. Okay, Because uh, as you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you find that the central idea is Jesus as king, right, laying out what it is that his kingdom is all about. And for those who are part of that kingdom, 
to say, this is how I expect my people to be operating in partnership with the kingdom of God. So it's a call, it's an invitation to us. This three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I've, often found, I've also found that it's one of the most practical guides of true discipleship that we can find in the whole Bible. So in a lot of our works, our ministries, we're focused on discipling others. And what I've found is if we will focus, not exclusively, obviously, but if we will give a lot of attention to the Sermon on the Mount and how we disciple others, we will be coming more in line, I believe, with what Jesus intended his people to walk in. So it's this invitation. Now, we're all very familiar with the Great Commission passage, right? Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. Uh, I believe it connects with this idea of the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus kind of lays out, this is what I want you to do. Go into all the nations, do a few things, baptize them, right? And then the last one that he says, he says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is our calling in the Great Commission. To teach the unreached, to teach others who are just born again. Okay? How to now walk in this incredible relationship, in this cr- incredible thing called discipleship. So when Jesus says that, okay, I want you to uh, teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you. I've often asked myself, what all things is he referring to? What are the all things in that Matthew 28 passage that he's really getting at? Well, obviously, it's all of his teaching, right? But if we can boil all that teaching down into a bit of a nutshell, I believe the essence of the all teaching in the whole four Gospels would be the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? So it takes all of his teachings and kind of brings them down together and then gives these, this, this lifestyle of discipleship that he intends his people to walk in. And then the rest of the epistles throughout the New Testament, they kind of they further these ideas of what Jesus commanded us to be teaching to new disciples. So it's very critical that we understand the Sermon on the Mount and that we buy into what it's calling us or how it's calling us uh, to live. But then in the context of prayer, because that's what we're talking about this morning. We want to teach new disciples how to pray. This is why Jesus put this Lord's Prayer into the Sermon on the Mount. Because it's so essential for new believers, uh, all believers, not just new ones. It's so essential to the life of discipleship okay, that we learn how to pray. That we understand the way that Jesus calls us to pray. So we have a little bit of background on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, our passage this morning, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 to 13, it comes right kind of in the middle of these three chapters called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in this particular section, starting in uh, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, all the way to verse 18, this particular section is Jesus teaching about three activities of a disciple's spiritual life. Okay? So he's got lots of different teachings earlier, the Beatitudes, different things. Now in this section, he's moving into teaching about these three activities of a disciple's spiritual life. Okay? He's going to go on uh, further and say some things about their practical life. But here, in this section, 6, 1 through 18, 
he's focusing on these three uh, activities of a disciple's spiritual life. So what are they? Well, we know doing good to others, right? Or giving, it's the same idea. Uh, prayer, and then fasting. These are the three spiritual ideas. Now, in order to understand the Lord's Prayer that we're going to get into in a moment, we need to understand that these three activities that Jesus is highlighting here, um, he's not advocating them. I've heard it taught sometimes that, okay, this is the section that Jesus teaches. It's really important to give. It's really important to pray. It's really important to fast. That's actually not what he's doing here at all. Okay? He expected, and any good Jew would have expected, who was hearing this Sermon on the Mount, he expected, of course you're going to be giving. Of course you're going to be praying. Of course you're going to be fasting. So this was not a teaching to say, hey guys, you should be doing these things. Okay, so what is it then that he's doing in this section related with these three spiritual activities? Well, there's the idea that there's a taint of human nature connected to all three of them. Okay, and this is what Jesus is guarding against. So there's a tendency in our flesh, there's a tendency in our human nature to do these three things, but to do them in a little bit of a fleshly way. Okay, to do them to gain uh, attention from people, to do them, to have people come and pat you on the back and say, wow, you're doing a great job following Jesus. You're doing a great job. Look at all that you've done. Look at how you prayed. Look at how you fasted. Look at how you gave that money to that poor person. Wow. There's a sense in all of us, and our human nature is like this, right? Where we kind of are looking for more than just doing it uh, out of a good heart, right? And that's what Jesus is getting at here. So, because, and we see this in all three of these spiritual activities, there's a warning that's given. The warning is this, take care how you do these three. So it's not you're supposed to be doing these three, he expected that. It's more, take care the way you're doing it. How are you doing it? What's your motivation for doing it? Okay, now we know with the Pharisees that they didn't do it for the right reasons. And that's what Jesus gives in each one of these three. He says, here's an example. This is how they did it. And then he says, they have their reward. But you don't do it like that. Take care how you do it. So in essence, what Jesus is teaching in this section is we're to do these three activities free from this tendency of drawing attention to ourselves. Okay? We don't do them to be noticed. We don't do them to have someone pat us on the back, though affirmation and encouragement is good. We don't do them for the sake of building our own reputation as someone who is spiritual. Well, I want to be, I'm a, I'm a missionary, right? So I, I want to be looked at on as someone who's spiritual. No, we throw all that aside. We say, Lord, I'm doing it out of a heart that's pure, that loves you, that is giving, that is praying, that is fasting out of the right motivations. Now, after Jesus gives this warning to true disciples to pray from a right motivation, now he proceeds to add clear instruction to us of how to pray. So he's kind of given background. He said, you, I, I don't want you participating in prayer if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, like the Pharisees did. It's not about drawing attention to you for who you are. I want you to have the right motivation uh, in doing this thing. Okay? Now we'll get into the actual passage. Let's just read it together. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So the first thing we want to recognize in this prayer is that uh, Jesus is the one giving it to us. Now, that's pretty obvious, but there are implications to that. We have this man who is fully God and yet fully man, this man who had the greatest prayer life with the Father that any other human being who has ever walked the earth ever had. Okay? And this man, who has had this prayer life of such deep intimacy with the Father, okay, this man is now drawing the curtains back a little bit. And he's saying, I'm going to give you some secrets to this prayer life that I have with the Father. Okay? So what we have here, in essence, is God himself teaching us how to pray to God. Okay? Jesus, fully man, fully God, giving us this teaching. And it's the most clear Bible instruction that we have actually on how prayer works. And it's straight out of the mouth of the Son of God himself. And so we want to uh, take it seriously as a result just of that, that he's opening, he's opening the window and he's saying, here, I want to invite you in because there's some things about prayer that maybe you haven't seen or understood. And I'm going to show you how to walk the way that I walk in my own prayer life. Uh, with the Father. Now, if we had to break down the prayer into kind of an outline, we would see that there are eight statements, and different people, you know, break these down in different ways. Uh, this is just the most helpful way that I've found. Uh, that I've found eight phrases or eight statements uh, in the prayer. So first, we see uh, God as Father. We address ourselves entirely unto God as Father, right? And we're going to look into what that all means in a moment. And then we see six prayers, kind of petitions, if you will, and then a closing, all right? And of these six middle prayers, so you have kind of the intro, uh, uh, our Father in heaven, then the six petitions, and then this closing, all right? So the first three of these six, the first three petitions, they relate with God. They relate with His glory. They relate with His honor. They relate with His work being done uh, in the world. And then the second three of these petitions, they relate now with more of our personal needs, okay? with our own concerns as an individual, as families. Okay? Now we see uh, an instruction in this pattern, right? that our own needs are not part of the first three. They're part of the second three. Okay? So the idea here is that ourselves or self and all of its needs are are meant to be secondary, okay? And the Lord and His work is meant to be supreme, is meant to be primary in the place of prayer. And we all know how challenging this is for us as human beings because we tend to come to prayer with uh, kind of this knee-jerk reaction. I have needs. I'm in a crisis. I, I, I have wants even that I really want you to do, God. Okay? And the Lord says, that's good. I, I, I'm all about that. I want to answer those prayers, or he would not have put them in the second three. So it's not that those are wrong. 
It's just that there's an order here that the Lord is saying, if you're going to walk according to my will, if you're going to get as close to my heart as possible, I do have some priorities and I do have an order that I want you to bring these things before me in. So it's an instructive pattern just in how we understand the outline. Now, one of the things that Jesus is doing in this prayer is he's modeling for us the priorities of the kingdom of God. Okay? So remember, this prayer is in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, with its call to this highest lifestyle of discipleship that is possible in the kingdom of God. Okay? So he's laying out phrase by phrase or petition by petition this picture of what is most important to him and which as his disciples in submission to this king in his kingdom, that we are also meant to take on as our priorities in life and in ministry. So yes, it's an instructive pattern about how we're to pray, but then it's more than that. It's actually a modeling of what's important to Jesus in the kingdom and what he's calling disciples to also make the most important in our own lives. Okay? So what's happening here is really a caution from the eternal Son. To not wander in prayer from what is important. Okay? We can tend to sometimes make or elevate the secondary issues. The things that uh, are important and that we do want to bring before the Lord in prayer. But we make them primary. And the Lord says, okay, I want you to keep secondary things secondary. So that you can prioritize what is really of the most uh, importance in my kingdom. And so that you can start to embody those things as well. Because we all know that when we start to pray... Something happens. I found that there's uh, two, at least, kind of things that are happening when we pray. Number one, God really touches that thing that we're praying for. He really does. Okay? He moves uh, in power when we pray for something in line with His will, obviously. And He actually in- intervenes and He touches that thing. Okay? And that's what we generally understand as prayer. But then there's a secondary, secondary, that's the wrong word. There's another operation happening when we pray, and that's what is happening in you and me, on the inside of us. So here Jesus is saying, I'm highlighting the priorities of my kingdom, and so that when you start to pray these priorities, your own heart is going to start to get changed. You're going to start to align more and more with the things that are most important uh, to me. Now, I mentioned a little bit at the beginning the idea of the familiarity of this prayer. Okay, and not to just check out because, oh, well, of course we know the Lord's Prayer. Okay? This is the challenge we have with it. So it's almost to some degree, and, and we're all guilty of this, it's been stripped of its true meaning and the true power that Jesus intended it to have because we've heard about it so often and even we've maybe recited it. Okay? We've memorized it. Right? Well, that's not the same, actually. As praying it. So we want to move beyond the familiarity of it. Oh, yes, I know that. And actually say, well, Lord, open these, pull back the window on each phrase. I want to see your heart in each one of these petitions, and I want to more align with what it is that you're calling me to be about and what you're calling or what you're wanting to do in the earth itself, bringing this transformation. All right? Now let's jump into the prayer itself. Quick overview of each phrase. So the first one we have there, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven, verse 9. So this is getting at the posture 
we are meant to take in prayer before God. So what Jesus does here in this four-word introduction is guide us into a deeper revelation of who God is in His essence. Okay? We want to know, Father, what are you like? God, I want to see you more clearly. Okay? And this is always the beginning point of true prayer. So if we're starting to enter into, uh, into true prayer according to how the Lord designed it, this is always the starting point. Father, I want to see you as you are. Reveal more of yourself to me. We gaze our attention off of the issues even that we're praying for. Right? And we, we focus, we fixate on Him for who He is. And then a peace starts to come over us so that we start to pray these things from a place of rest instead of this knee-jerk kind of crisis place that so many of us get into uh, in the place of prayer. So we want to be, be led every time we come in prayer. Lord, I want to see you as you are. This is the beginning place of all prayer. So Jesus, in this prayer, He highlights two central points of who God is in this four-word statement. First, He's Father, right? He's Father. He's one who is tender. He's one who is personally involved in every area of our lives. He's one who is motivated with great delight for you and I. Sometimes I find in my own life how hard it is to believe that. That God delights in me. Not because of anything I've done, but because I'm His Son, I'm created in His image, and because of His love first for me, I have chosen to receive that love. I have chosen to follow His Son. And because of all of that, He says, I absolutely delight in you. It's not about what you do, it's who you are. I delight in the fact of who I've created you to be. And this is the idea of Father, that He loves us. He has affection for us. He's absolutely committed to this idea of delight over each one of us. So He's Father. That's the first idea. Second, He's in heaven. It's easy to identify with Him as Father. Okay, And even the song we said this morning, What a friend I have in Jesus. And He absolutely is friend. But in that familiarity, again, using that word, the same related to the prayer, we can often get familiar with God Himself. He is a friend, an intimate friend, a close companion, closer than anyone else could ever be. And yet, He is transcendent as well. He's the all-powerful, all-holy, all-knowing, all-pervasive, the God who spoke one word and the whole universe came into existence. Okay? So yes, He's Father, but He's Father in heaven. And as we approach Him in prayer, we come before Him and say, Lord, because You're Father, I can submit all I am before You. I can trust You because You're a good Daddy. You're a good Father. But then also, because You're transcendent, You are in heaven, I can approach You because You're the all-powerful, the all-sovereign, the all-knowing, the, the everything in everything kind of God. And this is how we are to approach Him uh, as Father, our Father in heaven. The second phrase, hallowed be your name. We proceed from this starting point of having a right revelation of who God is, a right uh, understanding as we approach Him. Right? Then we proceed to ask Him 
Lord, would you make your name openly worshipped and glorified in all spheres of my life, in all spheres of my ministry, in all spheres of my family, in all spheres of this city, in all spheres of this nation. Lord, make your name openly worshipped, openly honored, hallowed be your name. And then, because it's an individual thing first, how can we go out and be used of God in this way to reveal this revelation of this hallowedness, of this great glory of who God is? How can we go out and be a conduit or a vessel of that if we are not first experiencing at least a measure, a small, small measure of it ourselves? Okay, and this is the idea. Lord, be hallowed. Hallowed be your name in my life first. Right? So that your name is glorified, openly worshipped, so that as I start to relate with others, unbelievers, believers I'm discipling, that this idea of their own lives going after this purpose, of, of, of having your name hallowed and glorified, okay? openly worshipped through their lives, they can begin to walk in it because I have walked with them a little bit. This is the idea that Jesus is getting at. I want you to experience this so that you can then go out and touch multitudes of lives and have them openly also experience this glory and my hallowedness in their own lives. So we want to pray this over ourselves, our families, our ministries, our cities, our nations. Lord, hallowed be your name. Be glorified in these places. The third petition, or the second petition, the third phrase, your kingdom come. We know that God is glorified through the manifestation of His kingdom coming and His will being done in the earth. This brings Jesus great honor. When His kingdom in any given place begins to show up, begins to be manifested, the characteristics of His kingdom begin to be known in that place, a geographical situation. The Lord is glorified. This honors Him. So what He's doing in this little petition is setting before us the call to participate in seeing His kingdom come into being in our circumstances and in our geographic places, of participating in Him with seeing this kingdom come through prayer. Through prayer. Now, if you're anything like me, I'm a doer, right? So this idea of praying in the kingdom, I often read that, and I say, okay, let's go win the world for Jesus. Okay, Let's go do something. And there is an element in many other places in Scripture where that is the calling, the Great Commission in particular, several others. But in this context, he's not saying go out and do. It's interesting. He's saying pray. Pray. If you will pray my kingdom into being, That is the primary way, it seems, on the heart of Jesus for seeing this kingdom come about. And then, yes, there are things that we do. But we start with a place of wholehearted prayer. Lord, we want to see your kingdom realized here in Chiang Mai. Lord, we are praying for this first. Not that we're not doing anything, but we're praying for it as the foundation. Now, there's two things that Jesus is referring to here when he says your kingdom come. First, he wants us to pray that his kingdom will be advancing uh, right now in this age among every last people group, right? And we're all 
a little bit familiar probably, Matthew 24, 14, right? And this gospel will be preached in all the world uh, as a witness to all the nations. The word there, not geopolitical nations, all ethnic groups, right? So the idea here of your kingdom come is that I'm aligning with my heart saying, Lord, I want to see your kingdom among all these remaining people groups so that you can come back, so that you can return in glory. Because that's the second part of the prayer. So yes, we're praying for the advancing of the kingdom now in this age, so to speak. But then we're also saying, Jesus, we want your eternal kingdom that comes when you return. We want that to come quicker. So Lord, your kingdom come. Reach all these people groups. Let a realization of your kingdom be known in all the earth. So that a few, or we want more than a few, so that a multitude, right, as it says in Revelation, a multitude from every last uh, tribe, tongue, ethnic group, etc. We want that to happen, Lord, so that your eternal kingdom can then come. So it's a two-faceted prayer there. Lord, we want to see both sides of your kingdom. Your kingdom now and your kingdom for eternity coming. This is what he's getting at in praying uh, your kingdom come. The next petition, verse 10, your will be done. So this is a prayer that, if we're honest, uh, it really examines us deeply. Okay, Because if you're anything like me, often when I'm praying, I'm sometimes not 100% sure if I'm praying in line with His will. Okay, So Lord, Your will be done. Right? And so we want to move to this place where we are understanding the will of God and beginning to pray it into existence. That's the idea here. So when we say your will be done, we're not... Uh, I used to live in Turkey, so I'm, I'm thinking of the Muslim prayer, Inshallah. Yes, whatever God wills. Right? Sometimes as Christians, we can take this same uh, attitude on. Well, Lord, your will be done, whatever it is. And now there may be a measure of that that's okay, but I don't believe that's what he's getting at here in the Scripture. I believe he's saying, I want you to align with my will so that you can start to pray my will into being because we're in a partnership together. We're in a relationship. I will not advance my kingdom without the body of Christ walking with me. And we know that that's a high, high value that the Lord Lord has bound himself to. So we're not talking about this fatalistic kind of your will be done. Instead, what we want to do is discern His will in any given situation by listening to His voice through His Word, through His Spirit, and then we're moved by His heart, right? And then we discern the will of God in any situation. Each of us have hundreds of situations going on right now in our lives. We need the discernment of the Holy Spirit to say, this is the way forward. This is my will. And then we pray that will into being. And it's this cycle that prayer is. Okay, so a situation arises. God moves us to go to Him in prayer saying, I don't know what to do in this situation, Lord. Show us your will. And then in time... He begins to show you that through His Word, by His Spirit, through the still small, uh, the still small voice. <clears throat> and you begin to pray that back to God. Now, it's kind of like, I've often asked the Lord, Lord, why don't you just take our little piece out and you do what you're going to do? You do your will, right? And He says, well, 
I do do that sometimes. But in terms of your everyday lives, I really want the relationship. I really want to partner with you. Okay? So to pray your will be done is first to discern his will and then to pray it into existence. That's what he's getting at in this prayer. All right, the next one. Give us this day our daily bread. Verse 11. Now, this starts to shift us from the first three petitions focused on God, His glory, His work in the earth, His purposes, His kingdom coming, His will being done. This moves us from those three down to the, uh, the next tier, if you want to call it that, though it's not that one is better than the other. Okay? He moves us now to begin to pray for our needs. He's not saying that's not important. He's saying, I want you to have the right priorities. Okay? That He wants to supply for us. And what he's instructing here is that his disciples will only look to him to be that supplier. To be that one who meets our everyday needs. The scripture says, uh, I can't remember the exact place, some of us might be able to do so, that God is a jealous God. He's jealous for that role of supplier for you. And when, when we start to go around uh, and find other suppliers that, that hurts the Lord's heart. He says, no, come before me. Ask me every day. All right. Now, he already told us in verse 8, if you go back to verse 8 just on your own, you see, we know that the Father knows our needs beforehand. Right? So why do we need to bring them before him? Well, it's the same idea of relationship. He loves the relationship. He loves to see our joy. When we say, Lord, we have a need, a financial need or a material need. That's the context that he's praying for here or that we're to be praying for. Okay? I have a need, Lord. Okay? I seek your face. Lord, supply this need for us. Right? And then in time, in different ways, different forms, he does that. Right? And the point here is that when we see that he answered that it is meant to touch our hearts and move our hearts. That we see this cycle taking place. Wow, God, you heard me. You know my little circumstances. You're my Father who's intimately uh, engaged and connected with these seemingly small things, but they really matter to me and my life and my ministry and all these different things. And the Lord answers, and the purpose of that is for us to go, Wow, you know me. You love me. You're intimately related. And he goes, yes. Now, if you hadn't have prayed, you might not have seen the connecting point. You might not have connected the dots on your own, right? And so you praying, you seeing the answer, causes our hearts to go, oh, God, you're so good. You're so good. You're so faithful. Now, what we tend to do in prayer is we focus on the end result. Lord, I have a need. Okay? Please meet this need. Right? And that's what he's saying here. That's a good prayer. We focus on the end result, though, and the Lord focuses on the relationship. He says, no, I love when you come and talk to me about that need. I love when you come and see me as I really am, and your own heart begins to align with who I am, my Father in heaven, and your heart starts to get changed. The way that you love me and the way that you view me, God says, starts to change. I love this. Now, another part of this petition is that we're not to be anxious about tomorrow. We're not to be worried about the needs of tomorrow, but to focus on His kindness today. 
So when his disciples would have heard this teaching, okay, where he said, give us this day our daily bread, they would have, as good Jews, they would have immediately connected it back to the manna in the wilderness with the Israelites. Right? Because the manna was given for one day only. So Jesus is saying the same thing here. I want you to ask for today. Now, it's not wrong to save. It's not wrong to do all those things. We don't have enough time to extrapolate all that. But the idea is that in Jesus' heart, he is saying, I want you to focus on today. For the needs that you have today. Just like the manna. It was given for one day, and it could not be stored up. The Lord wants us to come to Him as that faithful supplier. Okay, and we all have needs that are before us. Uh, in our work, we're in a situation right now where uh, we need a significant sum of money relatively quickly. Okay? So we started to pray. All right? And the Lord gave us uh, actually a third of that significant amount. Now, I would have liked if the Lord gave us the whole thing up front. Right? Most of us would have liked that because it doesn't, okay, we have it, great, now we can go forward. Right? The Lord seems to view it very differently. He says, well, if I did that, and he does do that in many situations, if I did that, that wouldn't require you tomorrow to continue to have to trust me, to continue to have to walk this life of faith, which is really the centerpiece of our discipleship as believers, having that faith day by day and having that faith tested and grown and developed over time. So to enhance that faith process, the Lord says, pray for today that you have what you need. And tomorrow, keep doing it. And the next day, keep doing it. And I'm going to continue to supply all that you have. Because I care as a good, tender father. I care about your physical needs. Amen. The next petition. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sit against us. So God takes care of our physical needs. But now he also takes care of our spiritual needs and our relationships. So what he's saying here, in essence, is I want you to invite me to evaluate you on a regular basis and see, is there any area of sin which I might need to confess and repent of? Okay? Because we know how detrimental sin is to the relationship. Right? Sin blocks our relationship with God. Sin numbs our spirits. Okay? We go to pray and we might have unconfessed sin or different things going on. It makes it hard to sense His presence. It makes it hard to discern that will of God that we are to be praying. It makes it hard to get into the Word. It seems kind of boring. It seems kind of dead to us. Well, Lord, search me. Is there anything that's causing that hindrance on a day-by-day a day basis? And then he, we repent and he, uh, he cleanses us of all that sin. All right? Now, the next part is that we are then to forgive others. Now, this phrase has been often, uh, I believe, misinterpreted. On, on, uh, when you go back to the original language, it's not, a, uh, uh, it's not a sense of, well, let's put it this way. We don't earn God's forgiveness by forgiving others. We don't earn God's forgiveness by forgiving others. Instead, what's happening, the dynamic here, is that we show that we have actually grasped what God has done for us. We understand that God has forgiven me of so much, of having a heart that was in total rebellion against Him. Okay? And because He has forgiven me, how can I not then forgive other people? Okay? So it's not the idea 
that we're saved uh, because, or we're forgiven only if we forgive others. It's more the idea that, of course, we're going to be forgiving others because we know how much we've been forgiven. And so we're called to walk that line of saying, Lord, I will forgive others. I will walk in relationship with other people who have offended me, who have hurt my heart, who have bruised and wounded me in, in maybe terrible ways. But because of how you have forgiven me, I will extend that same measure of forgiveness to others. That's the idea that he's getting at. Okay? And he says, if you're going to do this, it's going to restore your spiritual life because sin will be taken out. Right? And it's going to restore your relationships because you're going to be uh, connected with people more because you're forgiving them and they're forgiving you and you're walking in this uh, uh, forgiveness lifestyle, this forgiveness relationship. Okay, the next one. But do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So God takes care of our physical needs. God takes care of our spiritual needs and our relationships. And now he's taking care of enabling us with ongoing spiritual victory. So the point here is that Jesus is saying, I want my people to be praying for themselves. I want my people to be praying for others, for your ministries, for the whole body of Christ even, to be spiritually strong when they are faced with temptation. Okay? So we pray this prayer before we get into the tempting situation itself, right? So the Lord is saying, uh, on a regular basis, be praying this prayer. God, do not lead us. Help us overcome every temptation that comes our way. That's the idea of that, that phrase, do not lead us into temptation. Help us to overcome. Now, is that just through gritting our teeth and kind of trying harder to overcome? No. The idea here is spiritual strength being deposited by the Holy Spirit into our spirit, Right? That when we face that challenging situation, that tempting situation, right, we're able to overcome because there's this reservoir of spiritual strength given by the Holy Spirit so that when something comes, we're easily able to push it aside and keep going. That's the idea that he's getting at. Because there's fiery darts constantly assailing every born-again believer all the time. Okay? So what we want to be doing to protect ourselves and to protect our brothers and sisters and to protect the body of Christ, the Lord seems to be saying, pray for them that they would have spiritual strength on the inside, not just gritting teeth, but power on the inside, able to overcome every, even before that temptation comes so that when it comes, it's just a shrug of their shoulders and they move on. Okay? This is what he's getting at here. I want my people to be overcoming temptation. Right? This, is, this connects back with hallowed be your name. Right? Because if we're not overcoming temptation, if we're falling to it constantly, now God is a gracious, merciful God. And if we mess up, okay, what does he say? He says, repent, confess it, admit it, understand what you've done wrong. I will cleanse you, and then I will give you power to walk in victory the next time. And that's what he's getting at here as well. So that your name will be glorified. We want to overcome uh, uh, our temptation and be delivered from the evil one. And then the prayer ends, verse 13, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So like the prayer starts with us fixing our eyes on God as He is and having that revelation of who God is, consistently expanding, consistently growing, 
the Lord also has us end with this kind of a thing. So we're ending with this song of worship, this song of adoration. Because of the goodness of God, because of the extent of His glory, because of the extent of His kingdom, because of the extent of His power, forever, because of the extent of the timing on these promises, we're able to come faithfully before Him in prayer and say, Lord, I will trust You to see these things happen. And when we see Him in this way, the extent of His kingdom, His power, His glory, faith and confidence is built up in our inner man. We have greater faith, we have greater confidence in the place of prayer to say, Lord, do these things that I've just prayed, if they're in line with Your will, and we can trust and believe with faith and confidence because of the supremacy and superiority of who He is. Amen? Let's all stand. Just have the uh, the worship team come on up. Father, we do ask this morning, Lord, that you would teach us more about prayer. Lord, how familiar we've become with uh, with it, but I sometimes fear, Lord, we're at times still missing the mark, Lord, related to your heart in prayer and for prayer. Lord, and what this vehicle called prayer is really all about. Lord, we we ask that you would expand our understanding, Lord, that you would grow us, that you would teach us, that you would mature us, Lord, in this understanding of prayer. Father, especially as leaders and ministries and the kinds of works Lord, being done by this group of people. Father, we need that depth of prayer. We need that true spirit of prayer. We ask that you'd give it to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.